Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The Bold Museum Reflecting a Moonlight Experience of the Unseeable by Robert Wright It takes a moment to grow accustomed to walking in the dark of the long, steeply roofed room that houses Matt Collishaw's art installation, Eidolon. But the artwork's impact is immediate. Two huge, moving images in the middle of the room show a blue iris flower is being engulfed by flames but not consumed. Speakers play in Latin a story from the Hebrew Bible's book of Daniel, in which three young Jewish men survive being thrown into a fiery furnace for refusing to worship the Babylonian king. The artwork is a rare successful attempt to capture in modern art the essence of Christ's crucifixion and the Christian tradition of martyrdom with its roots in earlier Jewish beliefs. Eidolon is one of the highlights of the UK's first faith museum. A bold project opened on October the 7th in Bishop Auckland Castle, the historic residence of the bishops of Durham. The museum forms part of the Auckland Project, a series of initiatives in Bishop Auckland, northwest of Darlington, being funded by Jonathan Ruffer, a Christian and successful city investor. Ruffer's childhood home was outside nearby Middlesbrough. The new institution aims to tell the story of 6,000 years of faith in Great Britain, starting with the Gainford Cup and Ringstone. The stone, found 90 years ago, 10 miles from Bishop Auckland, may date from as early as 4,000 BCE. It features carvings regarded as the earliest evidence of religious practice in Great Britain. Ruffer, however, declines to link the museum's contents to his own faith or an explicitly Christian message. He insists that he is merely seeking to advance discussion of faith in a society where it is little debated but remains a potent force. In the living room of Castle Lodge, his home in the castle grounds, Ruffer compares the contemporary taboo about religion with the very different mores of the 19th century. Nobody talked about sex in Victorian times, he says. It's impossible to imagine that because the public world was silent on it, it was not as much a guiding force as it is today. I think that's where faith is now. He adds that the ten-year process of establishing the museum has made it absolutely apparent to him why there are no other similar institutions. What is a museum for, he asks? It's to gawp at things. And if you think what is the subject matter of a faith museum, it's God. In whatever form and shape that you believe that God to be, you cannot see the topic. The museum is nevertheless rich in sometimes poignant objects that the curators call witnesses of faith. They include the Winchester ring, a ring with Christian symbols dating from the 3rd century of the Christian era. The ring found only a mile from the museum 
is regarded as the earliest known evidence for Christian practice in Britain. There is a small slate engraved on one side that served as an altar for recusant Roman Catholics while their church was out in the cold and had to stay hidden during the Reformation years. The slate could be turned over and disguised as a normal roof slate when not in use. The museum has on loan the Bodleian Bowl, a rare example of a ceremonial vessel used by one of England's Jewish communities before King Edward I expelled the group in 1290. Rafa says the impact of the objects, many on loan from other museums, comes from their histories. There's a great power in the objects that we have, he says. Among the advisers on the museum's establishment was Eileen Harrop, a Church of England priest, originally from Singapore and of Chinese origin. She was appointed as an entrepreneur priest in 2016 to work with Ruffer on the Auckland project. Meeting in the castle's former library, she says the museum avoids suggesting all faiths are the same, while also steering clear of Christian proselytising. Harrop, now the vicar of four parishes around Bishop Auckland, expects the museum to have a powerful effect on visitors. It allows for people to experience the God who led Jonathan here, she says. It allows for people to enter into all the different ways in which people can identify something about faith, and then it's up to God. A visit's emotional impact comes largely from the new institution's first floor, devoted to works created by contemporary artists exploring faith. Some of the most powerful exhibits are black and white pictures in which Khadija Say, a young British Gambian artist, explores possible uses for religious objects belonging to members of her family, some Muslim and some Christian. Say lost her life in the 2017 Grenfell Tower fire. A series of works by Christian painter Roger Wagner has proved particularly timely. The museum opened the same day that Hamas terrorists started the current Israel-Gaza war with their attack against Israel. The paintings translate stories from the Christian New Testament to the contemporary riot-scarred occupied West Bank. Eidolon is among the works on the first floor. Harrop calls it an amazing installation, particularly for its retelling of the story of Daniel. It relates a story of what was going on in that particular experience of the faithful person called and protected with his companions in relation with God and the power of faith, she says. Ruffer, meanwhile, shies away from expressing spiritual aspirations. Asked how he hopes people will respond to the museum, he says, I couldn't care less, that's up to them. I have many faults, but a sense of wanting to tell people or persuade people how they should be is very low down on the list. Yet Ruffer is clear that he received a clear, divine call to come to Bishop Auckland. He was first drawn to the area by his enthusiasm for Spanish art and his determination to prevent the Church of England's church commissioners, then owners of the castle, from selling its prize artworks. Life-size 17th-century portraits by Francisco de Zurbaran 
known as Jacob and his Twelve Sons. The paintings, saved for Bishop Auckland in 2011 by a multi-million pound donation by Ruffa, remain in the castle. But the Zubaran link inspired Ruffa to establish a Spanish gallery dedicated to art from Spain on Bishop Auckland's marketplace. I came here really through a calling, Ruffa says. I felt the need really to drop everything and come up to somewhere in the northeast to be a part of a community. Ruffa's engagement with the town deepened when the church commissioners announced also in 2011 that they planned to sell the castle. Auckland Castle was formerly a seat of both ecclesiastical and secular power when the bishops of Durham were prince-bishops, uniquely in England, both secular governors and bishops. The bishops lost the last of their secular powers in 1836. Ruffa bought the castle and transferred ownership to a newly established Auckland Castle Trust, which became the Auckland Project. Ruffer accepts there are issues with trying to capture the imagination of Bishop Auckland's 25,000 inhabitants from inside a castle whose imposing entranceway symbolises its symbolic role as a seat of sometimes oppressive power. That sense of power is felt as a reality by people, he says, but it's empty. Power has long since moved away from the prince-bishops and then the bishops. The castle's unique history, nevertheless, makes it the ideal setting for the museum, according to Ruffer. Exhibits are housed both in a wing of the historic castle and a new purpose-built extension. Ruffer says the castle was a far better place to site a faith museum aimed at raising questions than somewhere more explicitly linked to a specific faith, such as a cathedral close. Auckland Castle has been intricately involved with faith for nearly a thousand years, and yet it hasn't been a place of worship, he says. It has a chapel, but it's ecclesiastical without being a cathedral, church or minster. So it seemed to me that that made it very appropriate for a faith museum. The early signs, according to both Ruffer and Harrop, are that the new institution is encouraging reflection among visitors. Ruffa says the museum has responded to the elemental need for faith. He adds that the positive reaction so far vindicates the initiative to establish the museum, which he says has brought together objects and described them without any directional guidance as to which works. Harrop reports that visitors seem to feel the need to experience the museum a second time after a first visit. I've heard from people who have been through it who have said they can't really put their finger on what it is, but they must go back again, she says. Ruffer identifies the museum's power by saying that it gives people an easier experience of the divine than would otherwise be available to them. He compares the experience of encountering God through the museum to looking at the light of the sun as reflected in soft moonlight. That, he points out, is far easier and looking painfully and directly at the sun. The thing that changes people is to be confronted with something bigger than yourself, he says.
status, grievance and resentment. C.S. Lewis on the surprisingly modern business model of hell by Simon Horobin. November the 22nd is the 60th anniversary of the death of C.S. Lewis, an event that was overshadowed by the assassination of JFK on the same day. Although he is best known today as the author of the Narnia stories, the obituary that appeared in the Times newspaper a few days later noted that it was in fact the screw tape letters which sparked his success as a writer. Initially published as a series of letters in the church newspaper The Guardian, the screw tape letters appeared in book form in 1942. The idea came to Lewis during an uninspiring sermon at Lewis's local parish church in the Oxford suburb of Headington in July 1940. Provisionally titled as One Devil to Another, the book would form a series of letters addressed to a novice devil called Wormwood, beginning work on tempting his first patient by an older retired devil called Screwtape. In finding Screwtape's voice, Lewis was influenced by a speech given by Adolf Hitler at the Reichstag and broadcast on the BBC. What struck Lewis about the oration was how easy it was, while listening to the Fuhrer speaking, to find oneself wavering just a little. Lewis dedicated the volume to his friend and fellow Oxford academic J.R.R. Tolkien. After Lewis's death, having read an obituary in the Daily Telegraph claiming that Lewis was never fond of the book, Tolkien noted dryly, He dedicated it to me. I wondered why. Now I know. Despite Tolkien's misgivings, the public devoured the work and it quickly became a bestseller. Although, as Lewis pointed out, numbers of sales can be misleading. A probationer nurse who had read the book told Lewis that she had chosen it from a list of set texts of which she had been told to read one in order to mention it in an interview. And you chose screw tape, said Lewis with some pride. Well, of course, she replied, it was the shortest. Not all readers approved of its sentiments. A country clergyman wrote to the editor of The Guardian withdrawing his subscription on the grounds that much of the advice the letters offered seemed to him not only erroneous but positively diabolical. The confusion, no doubt, arose from the lack of any explanation surrounding their circumstances. In a later preface, Lewis gave more context, though refused to explain how this devilish correspondence had come into his hands. Its publication by Macmillan in 1943 brought Lewis to the attention of readers in the United States. When Time magazine featured an article with him in September 1947, it carried the title Don vs. Devil. A picture of Lewis featured on the magazine's cover with a comic image of Satan complete with horns, elongated nose and chin and clutching a pitchfork standing on his shoulder. The Screwtape Letters are the product of the war years, during which Lewis wrote many of his most popular works. It was in 1941 that he delivered the first of his broadcasts for the BBC Home Service, which launched his career as a public apologist for the Christian faith. In 1942, Lewis published Perilandra. 
the sequel to his first space travel novel, Out of the Silent Planet, 1938, in which his hero, Elwyn Ransom, a Cambridge philologist, another nod to Tolkien, is summoned to Venus to prevent a second fall. Although it was published in 1950, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe begins with four children being evacuated to the countryside to escape the London Blitz. In setting his stories in outer space or the fantastical world of Narnia, Lewis could be accused of writing escapist fiction that avoided the realities of a world in conflict. Lewis, however, believed that the war had not created a new crisis, but rather brought into clearer focus an ever-present struggle between good and evil. For Lewis, the war did not present a radically different situation, but rather aggravated and clarified the human condition, so that it could no longer be ignored. As he remarked in the second of his broadcast talks, Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Lewis's message to a country living in fear of occupation by German troops was that the invasion had already happened. They had been summoned not to their country's defence, but to its liberation. When the Pevensey children stumble into a snow-covered Narnia under the control of the tyrannical White Witch, they are told in hushed whispers of the rumours of Aslan's return. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. It is a reminder that Aslan enters Narnia as a rebel, intent on overthrowing the witch and installing the rightful kings and queens on the thrones of Care Paravel. The Screwtape letters do not ignore the war during which they were written. Wormwood's patient is killed in the London bombing. But for Screwtape, a war is of no value unless it results in winning souls for his father below. His advice to his nephew is concerned with diverting the patient from engaging with universal questions by distracting him with everyday preoccupations and sense experiences. While these might involve the immediate conflict, they could also be the excitement of a new romance, a falling out with a friend, the prospect of promotion or an obsession with food. If the patient should begin to speculate about spiritual matters, Screwtape advises Wormwood to deflect him with academic theories and philosophies that could avoid confronting the question of whether the Christian faith might actually be true. The key point, writes Screwtape, is to fix the patient's attention on real life, but don't let him question what he means by real. It is ironic, Screwtape observes, that while mortals typically picture devils putting ideas into their minds, their best work is done by keeping things out. Despite numerous requests for sequels, Lewis was reluctant to twist his mind back into the diabolical attitude and revisit the spiritual cramp it produced. Numerous spin-offs have appeared to fill the void, with screw-tape emails, audio and stage performances, and even a Marvel comic book adaptation. 
Despite this, readers continue to turn to the original work. After all, Lewis's depiction of Hell as an unscrupulous business concern whose employees are perpetually concerned about their own status, nursing grievances and resentment, speaks to our modern age just as much as it did to Lewis's own. Letter from Armand, Discovering Resilience Around the Dinner Table, by Bell Tyndall. Did you know that a traditional Lebanese meal is usually served in four or five courses? First comes the vegetarian feast, a smoky eggplant dip, a mountain of pitta, grape leaves that are rolled around vegetables, rice and nuts, bowls of pickled turnips and ribboned cucumber. Then a hint of meat is introduced. Chicken wings and slow-cooked liver, beef meatballs infused with onion and parsley and smothered in breadcrumbs, all served alongside more dips, more vegetables and more pitta. The third time the servers come around, you are presented with the climax of the meal, a plate of painstakingly cooked lamb and chicken skewers. Only once that has been enjoyed can you expect dessert before a final course of fresh mint tea and little almondy-flavoured treats. Each time the servers reappear, you find yourself convinced that there cannot be enough room on the table to accommodate yet another round of plates. And each time you realise that you were wrong. Lebanese cuisine, similar to many other Middle Eastern cuisines in this respect, is designed to be enjoyed slowly, continually and communally. I did not know this. When I found myself at a Lebanese restaurant in their neighbouring country of Jordan, affectionately referred to as the oasis of the Middle East throughout the evening, I naturally loaded up my plate on the first round, wondering why everyone around me was being so overly polite with their miniature portions. That was, of course, my mistake. By the third and arguably best course, I was defeated. My far savvier dining companions that evening were Christian leaders from across Jordan, the Middle East and beyond. Among those present were Anglican bishops and archbishops, those whose provinces spanned countries and even continents. Leaders from the Oriental Orthodox family, representing Coptic Orthodox, Syriac, Indian, Greek and Armenian. There were Maronite leaders from Lebanon, Lutheran leaders from Jordan and Anglican leaders from Israel, to name but a few. And then there was me. I am 27 years or so into this Christian life of mine, and as well as being exposed to six or seven different expressions of church in my lifetime, I also read a lot. So I kidded myself into thinking that I understood the immense diversity encapsulated in the term Christianity. It turns out that I was wrong. Again, are you beginning to sense the theme of my trip? Utterly honoured to be at the table in Jordan's capital city, Amman, I was exposed to more diversity in that one meal than I had experienced in my entire life. I'm truly not exaggerating when I say that there wasn't a single minute spent at that restaurant 
where I wasn't soaking up something entirely new, whether that be a story, a statistic, a taste or a custom. There were seemingly endless details to learn about different expressions of a faith that I knew so well, lived out in contexts that I knew not at all. The whole experience was a sledgehammer to any notions consciously denied yet subconsciously held that Christianity had come to set up its largest camp in Europe. On the contrary, we are at present but a quarter of the story. Furthermore, the Middle East, in many respects, is the birthplace of Christianity. These countries are the biblical heartlands, as Rupert Short puts it. The Christian presence there dates back to the lifetime of Jesus Christ himself, who travelled and taught throughout the then Roman-occupied lands. As a biblical studies scholar, one of my favourite oddities of Christianity is that it is, to a degree, situated. There's human context involved, tangible, immersible, learnable context. The death and resurrection of the Son of God happened in human history. Of course, Christianity simultaneously bursts the banks of such contexts. In a far truer way, it is unplaceable and certainly uncontainable, transcending time, space and matter. It resides beyond all that we can measure. God is, after all, over all things, through all things and in all things, to borrow a phrase from Paul, who wrote this in a particular letter to a church rooted in the particular city of Ephesus during the particular time frame of 60 to 62 AD. So you see my point. But still, the context is there. The depth of history, the breadth of legacy. As Augustine once said of the church, it is on a pilgrimage through time. And I would suggest that nowhere is such a pilgrimage more obvious than the biblical heartlands of the Middle East. Indeed, one of the variables that fed into me being embarrassingly eager at the dinner table that evening was the appetite that had been worked up that day. An appetite caused by venturing into the Jordanian wilderness, walking along the Jordan River, journeying up Mount Nebo, looking out over the landscape that one can find detailed in the pages of the Bible. Not a bad place to have a cup of tea, eh? remarked the Archbishop of Dublin, who knows these regions well, as we sat next in the grounds of a Franciscan monastery on the top of Mount Nebo, looking out over the Dead Sea and all that surrounds it. If there is such a thing as sacred geography, I think I may have experienced it that afternoon. I was able to soak in the past and it was glorious, almost as glorious as the glimpse of the present that I was granted that evening. Over a long and shared meal, the kind that makes getting to know the stranger opposite you quite inevitable, I was able to hear about what it's like to be a Christian in the Middle East, in the here and now. The hospitality extended to me at the table included me being so generously provided with stories of what it can be like to be a Christian in their contexts. Of course, many stories shared throughout my time in Jordan were pertaining to the ongoing Israel-Palestine conflict. 
I was able to speak with a Greek Orthodox bishop about the Greek Orthodox Church, filling to bursting with refugees, which was struck and destroyed in a Gaza City blast. I was able to hear about the Anglican-run Cancer Treatment Centre of the Al-Akhli Arab Hospital, which was hit and damaged in a similar way. I learned about the Christian communities who were readying themselves to respond to the needs and trauma of those who may, eventually, be able to seek refuge in their countries. I heard compassion flow from people whose eyes hadn't, for one moment, turned away from the ongoing plight of the Palestinian nor the Israeli people. I also realised that evening just how much there is to be learnt about the faith that one has taken for granted from those for whom the very same faith is a source of discrimination, even danger. The pressure that 360 million Christians across the world are living under is referred to by Rupert Short as Christianophobia and profoundly coined as a 360-degree threat by Janine Di Giovanni. I heard how it feels to receive word that members of your community have been executed for their Christian faith. How such news incites fear and unimaginable grief. I spoke to one man who plans to leave the country he's currently residing in as soon as a certain political leader is no longer present, because according to him, this sympathetic leader's presence is the only reason his Christian faith has been tolerated thus far. And very quickly, I realised that I was no longer learning about these Christian leaders and the communities that they represent. I was learning from them. I began to ponder at length what faith looks like when it is laced with defiance. By the third course, I was beginning to appreciate albeit in incredibly limited sense, what hope feels like when it must be stubborn to survive. I glimpsed firsthand the difference that resilience can make to one's compassion. Like I say, I was intending to learn about these communities, but I found myself learning from them. Sitting at a table in a country that I'd never been to before, with a group of people who were all strangers to me before this trip, trying to wrap my head around contexts that I have no experience of, the words of the aforementioned Janine Di Giovanni sprang to mind. It, Christianity, combines ritual, which soothes in anxious times, with a vast sense of belonging to something much larger and greater than yourself. How in that situation where I had utterly misunderstood the mealtime etiquette, could it be that I felt a sense of belonging? On one level, it could very well have an awful lot to do with how naturally hospitality seems to come to people in Jordan, and it appears the Middle East in general. But I would suggest that it is something else too, something larger, something greater, something unseen. Perhaps Christian community in accordance with the Son of God, upon which it is built, is both completely situated in one's individual time and place, and simultaneously utterly uncontainable. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. 
We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.